Amen. How many of you believe that this morning? You are not alone. Fully understand sometimes you have to fight to believe that. Though it is already true, sometimes that truth is not translating into our daily experience. Has not yet registered in our emotions, but the reason that we worship is so that the Lord can work that out in us and remind us of that great truth that it's by his spirit that we are not alone. Well, this morning, uh, if you are uh, just joining in with us, we are continuing in our series entitled Generous. Generous, this is just the second installment on that series, so you are not far behind. And if you desire to catch up to where we are, you can feel free to go online and uh, listen to the uh, message that we've already had on that from last week. I would ask you to also just kind of in your heart somewhere, uh, well, I'm going to be praying in just a moment, but we've got an unprecedented number of guests uh, with us in Gospel Hope Espanol this morning. And so we just praise God for that, that he would continue to, you know, to to bless that work. And I don't know how many of you understand the heart behind uh, why Gospel Hope Espanol exists. And that is, you know, as, as Spanish speakers come to our country, you know, often the second generation becomes more socialized into the American church, um, but the first generation has a difficulty finding one that worships and, and preaches in their language. And then when that second generation goes to look for a, a place to worship, because maybe they're not as keen on their Spanish as the, perhaps their parents were, they look for another place and it creates kind of a little bit of a, a fracture in the family. But we wanted to make an opportunity available missionally where we could have that language congregation represented here so that maybe those subsequent generations could just come here rather than having to find a completely different address. And so we just kind of praise God that as our nation is still trying to figure out what to do with immigration, uh, that his kingdom uh, is poised to both lead in worship, train, develop, and disciple uh, and show the reconciling hope of the gospel to all people, regardless of where they might come from. And so, amen. Well, let's pray in preparation for today's message, as well as lift up those things I just shared with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, my heart is glad uh, to be uh, in your house and uh, in your presence. I believe exactly in what your word says, that we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh, because, Lord God, there is something distinct uh, that you like to do um, in the lives of your people. You've ordained and carved out this season in the life of your people for edification and enrichment and perfection, to be made more right and able for the work of ministry. And also, Lord God, through the teaching of your word, this is the time that you've ordained uh, that we would uh, uh, open your word and learn how to worship you in spirit and in truth and to also do the work. Uh, I thank you, Lord God, for the specific, Lord God, growth in the work here, Lord God, in Gospel Hope Inglés, as well as the one upstairs, the Gospel Hope Espanol. And I pray, oh God, that you will just continue to build in both of these congregations just a very robust and hearty uh, manifestation, Lord God, of your presence. Uh, we pray, oh God, specifically for the messages being preached in both congregations this morning on generosity. As we take a look at this text, Lord God, would you lift off the page like never before principles of truth, expand our view of the gospel, beautify your son, help us, Lord God, to see the simultaneous beauty and strength of your word and how it speaks throughout all generations and all occasions of the human life. Would you, Lord God, redeem our view of generosity this morning? Even amongst the most gracious of us, or even the stingiest, would you redeem my view, Lord God of generosity? Would you anchor it more 
firmly in an understanding of the gospel, that I do not see generosity as being some kind of separate expression from that of what you have done on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ. Would you, oh God, meet every one of us at our respective addresses and cause us to undeniably know that we have indeed encountered you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In the first service, we had probably about 99 to 100% uh, compliance on the question I'm gonna ask. And I'm gonna ask it here to see, you know, how the two congregations match or the two time frames. Uh, how many people here have played the game Monopoly? You've played Monopoly. Very good, very good. How many people, if not having played Monopoly, at least know what it's about and how the game works? Wait, 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 I'm sorry. How many people having played, how many people played Monopoly? Now, how many people know how the game works? That would suggest to me that when you open the Monopoly box, your primary preoccupation is fighting over who gets the hat or the car. If not that many people <laughs> know how the game works, <laughs> but yet you have played it before. But one of the things that uh, um, I like about Monopoly um, in particular is, is winning. Yes, I love winning. I love, as many of you probably do, um, uh, buying and, and trading and selling and making exchanges with the various people around the table so that I can get, you know, uh, you know, get some of the ritzier pieces of property, but eventually work my way from not just having an individual property monopoly, but an entire avenue or an entire section of the board. Uh, maybe getting a monopoly on the utilities or getting a monopoly on the railroads, right? You, like this, so that every, no matter where you go, you can't get away from me. You have to pay a fee. Right? I love that. Eventually, if I could, I'd love to just have a monopoly all over the board on every single street so that eventually everybody in the room and on the board has to just acquiesce and say, we give up. You've got too much property. Amen. Can I get some amens on that? It's monopoly. But one of the other things that I've grown to enjoy about the game of monopoly, and I believe it has some real gospel implications, believe it or not, is that when you're playing the game of monopoly, it is impossible to make moves outside the context of relationship. In other words, even if I'm winning and I'm getting ready to bankrupt you, I gotta recognize that that's my mom. <laughs> that's my sister. That's my cousin, that's my friend, that's my neighbor, right? Have you ever noticed that? That it is impossible in Monopoly to, to play the game well and only view it as a transaction. All of, the, all of the transactions are also relational in their nature. I believe that in much a similar way that, that, that God invites us to experience his grace in that way. That he has made this grand distribution into our lives, and as we show grace and model grace to one another, and I'm speaking specifically about giving here, that as we show grace to one another, that he refuses to let it be merely transactional, that it has to be relational. And I believe that's one of the great tensions of today's text. The Apostle Paul is calling uh, the church here, Corinth, to participate in giving because of a unique situation that has economically challenged another group of churches, the saints in Jerusalem. And he said, here's an opportunity for you to participate. You may not even know them, but you've received God's grace in a way, and I want to invite you to exercise and express that grace in the same way that it was given to you in Christ. We'll get there in just a moment. But I want you to experience the grace of God, both not only as a recipient, but also as a giver, so that you understand that the the giving of grace 
through your economic gifts is not just transactional, it's also relational. Back to the Monopoly board, we recognize that there is a finite amount of resources available, right? In this very small way, we experience a very finite amount of resources that are available in the kitty, and a very finite amount of resources are given to each one of the players. And we, we buy, sell, and we exchange understanding that there's only so much there. Well, our world is that way. There's a finite amount of resources that the Lord has distributed into the hands of all of us, and it is by his grace that as we make investments in each other's lives, as we give in various ways, that we are distributing that grace in relational ways, I believe is the call in the appeal of scripture. I would say it this way, that the Lord's grace is intended to create interdependency between his people and an ultimate dependency on him. The Lord's grace is intended to create an interdependency between his people and an ultimate dependency on him. Whereby, this ain't on the screen, just got to get this one. Whereby generosity is viewed as being relational and not just transactional. This is important for us as Western believers because so much of our lives from beginning to end in our DNA, in our documentation, in our philosophy of life is largely independent. Who are the heroes in American culture? It's the great, wise, big-brained innovators who are self-made men and women who came up with a product or a service or an idea and they ascended the ranks and they stood out by themselves. These are the people that we celebrate in our culture. It's in our documentation, the Declaration of Independence, right? Some of the most heralded people in our society and culture are entrepreneurs and people who, who are pioneers, who live on the tip of the spear, who do things and go places boldly that no one else has ever gone before by themselves. These are our cultural heroes. Maybe you're not amongst the cultural heroes, but think about this. Do you remember the days? Do you remember the days where it was okay to, 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 to go to a neighbor's home and ask to borrow a cup of sugar? Very few people who remember that, but we've seen it on some shows like Andy Griffin or something like that. But today, if you look on your ring camera and see somebody coming with an empty cup, you're going to let down the blinds and draw the bridge. You're like, what is this person doing walking over here with an empty glass? I hope they don't drop it on my property. You remember the days where we lived lives of high interdependency. Someone else's car broke down, so hey, you know what? I'm going that way. I'll drop you off on the bus stop. Or you know what? Your drive is only a few blocks away. I'll drive you over there. You remember the days of interdependency where you could discipline the children or other people's children without fear of rebuke. If someone were to put up a sign in our neighborhood right now that says, my child is missing, you know what? Every one of us would know who the child is but doesn't know who the child is. We pass by them every single day as they stand on the bus stop. Maybe for 15 years we've been in the same neighborhood and we know who the child is because we recognize the last name, but we don't know who the child is because we don't know the family at all. How many of us go to sleep at night, even in our communities? You look out the window and you see another family sitting at the table eating dinner, and you don't know them and you live next to them for five years. You know some things about them. Oh, that's the lady with the Labrador Retriever who jogs every morning. Hope she doesn't let her dog stop in front of my mailbox. But we don't know their names. We do not live lives of deep interdependency. And so one of the things that the grace of God through giving does is it calls us into lives of deeper interdependency. And so I hope we will see that in today's text.
as we continue to talk about generosity. If you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. I say to you not as a command, but, prove, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also you had a desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring may be matched with your completing it out of what you have. For if readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they do not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and that there may be fairness. And as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. One of the first things that the Apostle Paul does as he encourages the Corinthian church to give is he starts out with this really interesting and glowing example of the gospel. Did you see it there in verses 8 and 9? It was the last thing you talked about last week, and it's the first thing we'll talk about this week. He says, if your love and your understanding of grace is really genuine, he says, think about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. One of the first ways that the gospel gives a pattern for which or through which all believers should learn how to give is this. My attitude toward giving reflects my understanding of genuine grace. Paul used the word genuine. He says, I want you to prove the genuineness of your love and your genuine understanding of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross through the way you give. How does that work? My attitude toward giving reflects my understanding of genuine grace. Um, 24 years ago, that's after Carrie and I had been married for one year, um, uh, we had this little thing that we would do where we would have an exchange, a gift exchange. And uh, Carrie bought me this very pristine, beautiful, black, supple leather briefcase. Oh, I absolutely loved it. It matched the pair of shoes that I had and I wore often. Uh, it was just, I mean, it was just, it was spot on. Loved it. Just such a wonderful gift and full understanding of her husband and all that kind of stuff. Just very Ah. Ah. Carrie. But it's this briefcase, and, I, and, and, and so I got this briefcase, and initially I was afraid to use it because it was so pristine. I didn't want to get it all messed up. A few years later, I, and I, I started to use it, but a few years later I got another briefcase. This one was a different color leather, but super thick and really supple and this high level of craftsmanship. And I learned something about these leather goods that I grew to love, is that utilization adds to their beautification. You see, this great gift that I had received didn't have its best reflection and its best work in my life if it just stayed on the shelf as some kind of trophy or some kind of prized possession. I needed to put a computer in there and a few books and some other stuff and let it get bumped up against the elevator in the car, let it get hung in the, in the, in the thing at the airport when it's trying to close and we got to take off. I had to get it, let it, get it kicked under the seat and let the flight attendant mishandle it when she's putting it above. And I'm like, wait, that's my bag, you know? 
But, but utilization, when something is genuine leather, utilization adds to the beautification. And I believe that utilization of God's grace adds to his beautification. There are times in our lives where we would be afraid to extend ourselves in that kind of generosity because we feel like it might get abused. I might get, it might get bumped up against. I don't know what's going to happen next. We're afraid. But, but God wasn't afraid to extend his grace. Do you recognize the example that, that the Lord gave us in Scripture? He says that it was Jesus who became poor that we might become rich. He wasn't afraid to let the grace get kind of grimy and bumped up a little bit. Our salvation did not take place in the corner office of corporate America where we just got called in with Jesus sitting across from us in a pristine suit and said, sign here for all your salvation. No, it was a full pouring out of his life in an incredibly gritty and bruising way. The grace of God has greater beautification when it has higher utilization in all of our lives. And so we're first pointed to Jesus. But I want you to understand this. We've all heard the analogy or we've all heard the acronym that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Anybody ever heard that? God's riches at Christ's expense? That is an absolutely true statement. But God's riches at Christ's expense cannot just simply sit on the shelf. Think about it. God's, so it's not mine, riches, not mine, at Christ's expense. Well, I believe that the Bible is calling us to not only experience God's riches at Christ's expense, but to also begin to remanufacture or even recycle that grace in our own lives. We're called to not just be beneficiaries, but remanufacturers. Do you remember that song that we sang earlier? It is, it, the, the breath in my lungs belong to you, therefore, I'm going to praise you with it. I can't give breath back to you, but I can use it in a way that honors you. This is the same thing that as God has blessed each one of us in various ways in our lives, we are called to not just be recipients, but to also be recyclers. May I call your attention to just a few moments in the Old Testament. Do you remember this guy named Joseph, right? Essentially had nothing when he was disenfranchised and left for dead uh, by his brothers in a pit. But would eventually, by God's grace, ascend the ranks in Egypt and find himself as the COO of Egypt, the reigning world power. The rest of the world is experiencing a famine, but through the grace of God and wisdom given to Joseph, he was able to craft or engineer an economic plan that not only would save Egypt, but also save surrounding families who would come to Egypt for bread. And guess whose family who had, who had really done Joseph Dirty came to Egypt looking for bread. His brothers. And when he hugged them, they said, hey, the thing that the devil meant for bad, God has meant it for good. Joseph received an enormous amount of God's grace and turned around and recycled that grace into the life of the very family that had done him wrong. Our attitude toward giving reflects my understanding of genuine grace. It is gritty, and, but it receives higher beautification through more and greater utilization. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Anything that I've been given, I have been allowed to be a manager or a steward of that thing. In Luke chapter 18, something very interesting happens along these lines. You remember the story of the rich young ruler? Anybody remember him in Luke chapter 18? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus gave him a series of laws. Remember, he gave him the bottom portion, the bottom five of the Ten Commandments. 
right? He told them all these things he needed to do in terms of his horizontal relationships, right? Honor your father and your mother. Don't covet, don't steal, don't lie, don't murder. You remember those? You remember the story? Say it, man, if you remember the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So then after the young man said, I have kept all those rules for my, lot, for my, for my youth up, Jesus says, okay, there's one thing you lack. Take everything you have, cash it in, and give it to the poor. And it says that he went away weeping and sorrowful because he had much possessions. This young man was able to pass the law test but not pass the grace test. He passed the law exam, but he didn't pass the love exam. And Jesus wanted to point to that specific area in his life, not because he wanted to make the young man feel pain, but he wanted to call his heart into fully appreciating what real grace looks like. Real grace isn't can you be the greatest one in the room keeping all the rules, but do you understand what God has done on your behalf? Generosity, driven by the gospel, helps my heart to see Christ in a more holistic way. The rich young ruler was invited to see Christ, not just to seek this academic um, uh, uh, salvation where it's like, I know all the right things to do and say. Through asking him to sell all and give it away, he was asking him, what do you value most? Have you really heard the heart of the commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? Can you operate in that kind of love, not just legalistic religious life, showing up daily. I'm pretty sure that the rich young ruler gave on a regular basis and felt good about his giving, but Jesus wanted something else. He wanted to see if he understood genuine grace. I believe that for each one of us, regardless of where you are on the economic spectrum, that when you operate in gospel-driven generosity, it opens each of our eyes to the beauty of God's grace and the work of Jesus in a way that we would not know if we just let it sit on the shelf and just accumulated it all for ourselves. Central to the message of Christ is a sense of sacrifice, giving even when we don't believe that the recipient is worthy. Look at verses 10 through 12. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. How does this benefit me, Paul? Who a year ago started not only to do this, but also you had a desire to do it. There was a desire and there was a game plan. Now I'm calling you to finish it as well, so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completion out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable. Like your offering is there, your, your, if readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they don't have. Why is Paul priming us on this? Because our aspirations of generosity should be matched with our execution on generosity. How many people in the room, myself included, have seen other people operate in these moments of generosity and we were compelled and provoked? It's like, man, I want to be like that. I want to be a person who gives. And then the opportunity presents itself and we hesitate. You see, the Corinthian saints had already a year ago aspired to be great givers, but their aspirations were not matched up with execution. I believe that this is a part of the work of the enemy in a very subtle way. In a very subtle way, the enemy uses hesitation for good to produce sin in our life so that we don't even see it as sin because we often think of sin in a very legalistic way. Uh, my life went off the tracks. There's a rule that I did not keep. But James helps us with this. He says in James chapter 4, verse 17, 
Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. So no, you may not have broken some global commandment, but if the Lord has impressed upon your heart to do something and you don't follow through, the failure to follow through is actually a sin. Now, what's interesting about how Satan uses hesitation in our life, it's, it's, it's like this. Uh, imagine, if you will, if you had a, uh, um, um, a leaking roof uh, in your home. And you say, okay, I've got a plan, to, I, I plan and I put money aside. I've called someone out to give me an estimate, but I'm going to wait. The first thing that happens when you hesitate in life is what you originally set out to do gets naturally deprioritized over time. Even though the need is still there, it gets deprioritized. Something else in your life just kind of pops up and takes the front chair. We all live lives fighting the tyranny of the urgent, things that are yelling for our attention, but they're not necessarily the most important thing in life. And we go and give, squeak, we give oil to the squeaky wheel. And so hesitation in every category of life will breed deprioritization in things that we really should be doing. But then deprioritization happens, to, there's something else that happens. In addition to deprioritization, we also experience distraction. Well, life just gets busy and a bunch of other things come up that also begin to borrow our focus. And finally, this is the audience that should get this because there probably are some SAT takers in here coming up soon. Um, not only does hesitation breed de deprioritization and distraction, but also diminution in opportunity. Yeah, diminution opportunity. You know what a diminution is? The opportunity diminishes. The window, the chance. In other words, you, you hesitate for so long that by the time you get ready to fix the roof, you've got a whole bunch of other damage going on, and the guy who you originally got the quote from doesn't work for the company anymore. And the season is bad. Nobody gets their roof changed now. You see what I'm saying? Now let's flash back on when it comes to giving. Often, we will have all of this encouragement from a particular message and all this conviction that we need to start. Man, you know, honey, we need to start planning. We need to budget and build into the way that we live. We need to create this special space where we have something set aside to give on a regular basis, to give to the local church, to give to missions, to support a missionary, or to just be available when others around us have a need. We need to do that. And then we delay and that hesitation results in what? A deprioritization. Something else louder in our lives begins to take the front seat. And then the window closes. And we're like, well, they're not, they're, not, they're not taking up that offering anymore. Or, hey, that person moved away. I lost their phone number. They no longer have that need. That person's officially lost their house now. I don't have the chance to participate. Hesitation does not breed the God of will in our lives. When the Lord puts upon us a conviction or something that we need to do, we need to match our aspiration with our execution. Generosity driven by the gospel follows through because Christ did for you as well as for me. What do I mean? Look at the language of Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And I am sure of this, he, talking about Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Oh, it gets better. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance. This word guarantee, if you go in the underlying language, it's a, it's a down payment or a deposit, right? The Holy Spirit is the guarantee or the down payment or the deposit on the future inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here it is. The gospel is literally this relational yet seemingly financial transaction, fully relational. Jesus Christ dies on the cross in our place to do what? Pay for our sins and then to redeem. This is, this is provocatively relational and transactional language. To redeem us from death and from the control of the adversary. And then after he is raised from the dead, he is raised up, he sends down the Holy Spirit who serves as a deposit on the work and a proof that God is going to finish what he started. So the gospel supplies a pattern for how believers are even supposed to give. God follows through on what he said he was going to do. He doesn't just aspire. He doesn't just hope. He doesn't just engineer. You walk in God's office, there isn't like 15 whiteboards with all of the schemes of redemption. No, that thing is done. He's following through. Generosity driven by the gospel, it follows through because Christ did exactly that for you and for I as well. Look at verses 13 through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and that, that it may be fair. And as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Third premise, my abundance should intentionally benefit someone beyond me and other than me. My abundance, yes, it's a blessing to me, but it should also benefit those that are beyond me. The fact that the Apostle Paul used the word fairness would suggest that my blessings are meant to be administered communally that the church is supposed to live in this very communal way where, where if, as I'm benefiting, you're also benefiting. Uh, you know, Acts chapter 2, verse 44, kind of the, at the heart and soul of, of, of community within the new church, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Fairness creates a communal connection between us because who knows when the Corinthian saints will find themselves in need and the other saints across the globe will be able to participate in their benefit. My abundance is their abundance, according to Paul. Your abundance is their abundance. It creates not only a future opportunity for fairness that they might return the favor, but I believe that the current opportunity is this. Man, there are some people in our lives who don't have two nickels to rub together, but they can get a prayer through because the Bible says that the Lord is close to the crushed, close to the brokenhearted. There's some people out there whose level of dependency on the Lord, they're living day by day, hoping and looking and asking for a meal. They, they know how to talk to God and God listens. God listens to us too, but you'll know that there are some times in your life where you've been down on your knees, both metaphorically, physically, economically, and socially, and man, 
you and God were having some of the most robust, rich conversations of all time. There's people out there that if we would be a blessing in their lives, they would be a blessing in our lives because those folks who are getting these prayers through are crying out to heaven on our behalf. And so the, the, the abundance, they have an abundance of grace because the Bible says that his strength is made perfect in our weakness and that grace is multiplied for those who find themselves in greedy situations. So in one season of life, yes, I may be bringing the material blessing, but they may be able to, to do something else to supply that is immaterial in its nature. And we want to benefit from that in our community. But we live in a very quid pro quo society, do we not? If I give in any meaningful way, I need to feel like I got something back. And grace-based, gospel-driven generosity frees us from that mindset. Because uh, what I have, my abundance, my, my statement of account is a statement of accountability. As you increase in economic resources, that is an increase in the size of your assignment to the kingdom. James put it this way. There are people who are praying for more that won't get it because all they want to do is consume it upon their lust. I'll never forget a good friend of mine growing up. We knew each other since high school. We worked some of the same jobs together. And we were like, um, I won't tell you what age we were because we had got these jobs illegally. Um, Somebody had said we were one year older than what we were. But anyway, we were working these jobs. And, uh, man, we were out here making like six eighteen an hour, you know, stocking in the room. And we were just like, man, can you imagine what we'll be able to do when we're making seven bucks an hour? And we would just like dream of that. And we were just out there. And, and, then, and then our lives were very close together for a long time. And uh, 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 then we got to the point where it was like, man, so we were making like 10 bucks an hour. Man, you imagine what it would be like if we was making like $12 an hour? Yeah, that's what they're paying the store manager, you know, just going along, just doing our thing. And then it got even deeper. It was like, what if we was making $20 an hour? You know, I mean, we're just loving life, man. We're getting there because we had passed all these other milestones. And then, of course, we grew up. We best men in each other's weddings and our past, you know, school and, and careers took in other places. And by God's providence, I'm standing on, in my office, which is high enough on a high enough floor that I can see the city of Atlanta. And he's in his office on the other side of the, uh, of the exit ramp where we can see each other's buildings, but we can't see each other. And we're on the phone. And we start cackling like two schoolgirls. It's mad. And we, we're talking about how much money we were making. And we said, man, you remember when we used to dream about making $15 an hour? And he said, like, you realize how much money we make? And we still are dreaming about the next comma. And it just kind of let our hearts know that, man, there's something about us that has this insatiable appetite for more. Enough never feels like enough. And then I also remember this conviction, well, what is it all for? We passed through all these economic milestones. Was it just so that we could have new, bigger, shinier, and fancier stuff, longer trips? What was it for? The size of our account represented an increase in our accountability. Our salary was a statement of assignment from the Lord. It was his grace so that we could generate and facilitate grace in the lives of others. It wasn't just for us. 
If you are a believer, God bless you if you're balling out of control. But trust me, God wants you to ball within controls, the controls of the gospel. If you are a person who is poor, you are in shambles right now, God bless you because his grace is multiplied to you and there is a way that God wants to speak in your life that is equally as robust as he wants to speak into the person who's on the other end of the economic spectrum. But all of that is going to happen through the transactions of grace that take place within the community of faith. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. He didn't raise up some campaigns like we got to stop this poverty right now. Not to say that that's not the case, but, but Jesus understood that, that the poor would always be with us and, and people who have various degrees of need would always be with us. So what was his solution if it wasn't a game plan to annihilate poverty? The game plan was if you will follow my lead in showing grace in the way that's driven generosity, both will be able to honor the Lord. Paul sneaks in something here that you might miss at first blush or first read. In verse 15, he says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. He says, as it is written. What is he referring to? He's referring to Exodus chapter 16, where the Lord introduced Israel to how manna was supposed to work. Here's the people that have nothing, but God is the ultimate supply. And he makes everything that they need available to them on a very detailed, distinct, and particular schedule. And that regardless of the size of one's family, if you went out and you obeyed God, if you gathered on the days that he said to gather, and you didn't try to keep it and hoard it, and you went out in obedience and, and knew the days that he wasn't going to have a supply, each one of the times that, have you, that, that every family, regardless of its size, would have exactly what they need. Now, the Apostle Paul takes the Old Testament example of how manna was distributed and brings it into the life of the modern or the New Testament believer and says, that principle is still alive. There should be a kind of transaction happening within the body of Christ where those who have need, regardless of the size of need, and those who have much, regardless of how much, are working together in this very collegial, grace-based way that produces interdependency upon one another and ultimately glory to God because he's the one who gives it all. Generosity uh, driven by the gospel calls me to see his blessings as being both to me and through me. This is what it sounded like when he spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, not and that, in other words, so that I'm making your name great and I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to all the other families on the face of the earth. Hear me clearly. He did not say and that. In other words, it's not a luxury. It's a statement of assignment. I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to others. And I believe that when we operate in grace-driven, gospel-driven generosity, we see our blessings as being both to me. Yes, it's for me. Thank you, Jesus but it's also through me. Who should I be looking for to bless? And I should be raising my gospel goggles and looking at the world around me, looking for opportunities to be a blessing. Not so that I can facilitate people with lacks of great stewardship, but so that I might be a catalyst for people to worship God. And so, I still love the game of Monopoly. But I believe that the Messiah plays a different kind of monopoly. 
he obviously would beat all of us every single time. He's got eternal wisdom. He'd be able to gobble up all of the property, all of the utilities, and we would have none. Now, the Bible explains it this way. It says that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, and he has all things. He sits atop of the universe. That it is, he is the Lord of lords, and he is the king of kings. He lacks nothing. But yet he chose to come down and take upon human form, to embed himself in human frame. But not only did he do that, making himself a bondservant, but the Bible says that he would also go on and to give up not only the richness of heaven, but also the richness of life for us. On a regular basis, the Bible would tell us about the meager circumstances in which Jesus lived. Remember when they said that the uh, birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man have not a place to lay his head? This is the person who sits on the throne, who doesn't have so much as a nest. Why? Because it is the portrait of grace that he wanted to give every single one of us. The Messiah's monopoly is this. Every one of y'all is bankrupt. And I've got all the chips. But I'm not just going to give you some. I'm going to cash in everything I got. That you don't just become, you don't just kind of sort of make it through. But you become joint heirs with me. That's how the Bible defines our salvation. That the Lord Jesus Christ came and paid a price that should have been ours. The reason that we are bankrupt is because our expenses before God outweigh our resources. I don't have the capacity to pay the debt that I owe. From my first sin to my 50 millionth sin, I owe a debt to God that I could never pay. I've only got one life to give, and each sin costs a whole life according to the Scriptures. Jesus Christ pays that debt, but not just for me. He does it for all who would place faith in him. But again, he doesn't just pay the debt. He pours out his richness to satisfy the debt. He takes on our sin. He doesn't just loan something to us or give us a little bit. He pours himself out completely. He becomes bankrupt for us. Who would place faith in him? Jesus pours out his life for us, and the Bible says that if we would believe that that really did happen and that he really did do it for us so that we would have no indebtedness before God, it says that we would be saved, is that, that, that the slate would be wiped clean, that there's no indebtedness between us and God. And therefore, the grace that I now receive, I'm not trying to earn through my various works of philanthropy. I'm not trying to earn salvation through doing great moral acts. I'm moving in grace because of the grace that I have received. I've been blessed to be a blessing. So today as we celebrate communion, I want us to think about that. The Messiah having everything, choosing to not just give up a portion, but to give it all up so that we might have justification. We would receive his righteousness. We would receive pardon for the debt that we owe. We receive forgiveness for the sins that we've committed. Jesus does that for us. And that's what communion celebrates. If you're here today and you have not received the communion emblems, will you please put your hand up? We've got our, 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 our family is coming. You've got to keep your hands up. Our family's coming to serve you. As they're coming to serve, I also want to say this. You can't celebrate what you're not participating in. 
If you don't believe that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross, or you believe maybe that that did happen as just a historical event, but it's not personal for you, you have not placed faith in him, communion is not something that you should celebrate. You'd be celebrating under false pretenses. I hope that doesn't sound mean, but I hope it does sound meaningful. It is our desire that if you're going to celebrate the Lord's table, his death, burial, and resurrection, his work on the cross on your behalf, that if you're going to celebrate that, that you have at first appropriated it in your life. Man, if you're a person who wants to know about communion and all that it means and you don't, you don't fully know, would you, our, our prayer team would love to just kind of walk you through that. Prayer team, if you're in the place, would you go to your respective spaces? You can take your communion emblems with you. But there's some folks who are going to various places in the sanctuary. And as you're hearing me talk about this great relational transaction between us and Christ, you're saying, I think I've missed out on something. I don't know about that. There's some people out there that would love to talk to you about it, walk you through it, pray with you regarding it. For those of you that do know him, the believers have been called when we gather to celebrate this great work of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray for the body. Father, in the name of Jesus, this bread that you've given us in these cups, we drink it. There's no magic here but it is done in remembrance of you. We celebrate the fact that you gave up your body on our behalf to shoulder the weight of our sin, a crushing that should have been our own, a distancing from the Father that should have been our own, but no, you bore that in your body. And Lord God, we thank you for it. Let's take the bread together. The scriptures go on to say, in the same way he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the cup representing the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed on our behalf, paying the ultimate price, the pardoning of our sins, which we could not pardon our own selves. We thank you for doing it for us that we might be found in you. Let's take the cup together. This morning, I would ask us to search our lives and consider where have I treated generosity as being merely transactional? I'm going to do that because I need the tax benefit. I'm gonna do that because I see some other economic benefit, but not because you see yourself in this interdependent relationship with the local church and the local body and God as being the one upon which we are ultimately dependent. Let's continue to worship the Lord, amen.